There was a, a man uh, years ago, his name was Ken Wales. Uh, he uh, started out as an, an actor in Hollywood, uh, and he later became an award-winning uh, TV producer and film producer. Uh, but when he first started out as a young man, uh, he had a contract with MGM, uh, and he was cast to star in a film uh, with the following individuals. You can imagine, if you're a young guy trying to make your way in Hollywood, this is his first opportunity. It was with Dean Martin. Remember Dean Martin? Uh, Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine. Now, I know she has, like, issues, like, you know, but, but she was a big, you know, star in her day and time. So he got an opportunity to be in a film with them. So he uh, was on contract with MGM, so he took the script, uh, read the script to see what he was going to have to do in this uh, particular production, uh, and he realized that he, as a Christian young man, had an issue because his part in this particular movie was going to be a young man who purposely gets a young lady drunk so he can take advantage of her. And he realizes as a young Christian man, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. Um, I, he's going to flee the appearance of evil. And so he decides uh, not to compromise his faith and his, his morals, uh, but to go talk to the director. Vincente um, Minnelli was the director. And so the, the meeting didn't go well when he went in as a young guy telling the director, I'm not going to do that. And I will quote to you what uh, Manelli told him uh, in his office. Quote, uh, you're going to do it, uh, or you're going to be out of contract, and you'll go on suspension then, and you'll have no salary for one year, and I will see to it uh, personally that you'll never work in this town again, unquote. Uh, what do you think he did? Well, he didn't compromise. He, he told Manelli, I, I can't, as a Christian, I cannot play that part, and I won't play that part. And so they ostracized him. Um, eventually, uh, it cost him the opportunity to be an actor like he wanted to be. Uh, but he did other things with his life. And so a year later, uh, Ken uh, was speaking at a, a conference for 600 teenagers uh, at a Christian conference in the city of Denver. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to impact kids for Christ. And after one of the sessions, they all decided to you know, go out to dinner and, and do something fun that evening. So a lot of them went across the street to a, to a uh, pizza place. And after they had pizza, next door to the pizza place was a, a theater. And the theater had a big marquee on it. And guess what movie was playing at the theater? The movie a year before that he was supposed to star in. And he thought as he looked at that, because all the teenagers wanted to go to the movie, and he knew what the movie was about. And it hit him that, that evening, what would have happened had he played that part and still taught these youth about following hard after Christ going to that movie and seeing him compromise uh, his spiritual principles would have completely uh, destroyed his reputation with those teens. And so he was very thankful as he stood there that he had not compromised. Um, did it destroy his, his career? Uh, no, uh, because he eventually went on to produce um, the show Christie, uh, the movie East of Eden. And if you've seen Amazing Grace, he was uh, behind that as well. And so uh, God looked upon him and said, uh, you have uh, not compromised uh, spiritual teachings, and I will, I will bless you because of that. Um, the, the, the situation was awesome, uh, and he, he did what you should do. But Christians don't always act like Ken, do they? Uh, perhaps it's happened to you where you've compromised. Now, I will say just as an outset, uh, compromise is not inherently bad. Are you married? <laughs> Why are you laughing? I didn't say anything funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you already drew on a conclusion. So I've been married 43 years. I understand Compromise, right? Don't, don't you, if you're married? Because it's, it, it, you have to work through because 
she sees things differently than you, and you see things differently than her, and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, in, in my family, since my wife was raised by a father who did a career in the Navy, uh, there was a way to make a bed and a way not to make a bed. And I found out that that sweet young thing that I married when we first got married and we made the bed one day, I did it like I did in college. <laughs> Living with three other guys. And I just made it looking good. She looked at me from her side of the bed and said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm not making the bed. And then she said to me, not like that. <laughs> and so I learned to compromise. Uh, when I was folding towels one day, I did them like I did in college for four years. And she looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm folding towels. Uh, not like that. Uh, we fold it this way, this trifold thing. I'm like, trifold? Wow, I've never even thought of that before. Uh, so, so marriage is a series of compromises, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you, you, how do you in the upper echelons feel? Do you feel that you have to compromise occasionally to maintain a good marriage? Sure, sure you do. Uh, so some uh, compromise is good. Uh, but compromise is bad when it's asking you to go against known known moral biblical truth, like primary things that you don't want to compromise on. And so Ken's not, he didn't want to compromise on things he knew he shouldn't do from what the scriptures teach. Um, Daniel, uh, when he was taken to captivity uh, uh, as a young teenager, was asked in Daniel chapter 1 to compromise his faith and eat food offered to idols. And what did he do? Have you read Daniel chapter 1? Uh, he, he tells them, I, I don't care if I'm a captive in this foreign country, I'm not eating food offered to idols. And so God bl blesses him for that, uh, and uh, he wasn't going to compromise. And God eventually then used him, if you read the book of Daniel, in the government of the Babylonians. And when they're de destroyed by the Persians, they use him too. So he's at the higher echelons of their political machine, but he wasn't going to compromise his faith. So just because you might be in a political power structure doesn't mean you can't serve there. Daniel did. But he said, oh, you told me I can't pray? Well, I can pray because the scriptures tell me to pray. But he made other compromises to do what he did. So I'm not saying today that uh, all compromise is bad. Uh, I, I know that from just walking through life. But we do make compromises to things we shouldn't. And when you read this book of Esther, uh, this chapter 2 is a very shocking chapter. It's kind of an uncomfortable chapter because you see Esther as this great uh, heroine of the move of the, of the movie of the show uh, and she does great things for God but when you look at chapter two you see a young woman who's compromised if you pay attention and the thing is when you compromise uh, and do that which God tells you not to do is he finished with you because he does pour his blessing out on the Christian who doesn't compromise like a like a Daniel but does it mean if you did compromise, that God's done. And the book of Esther is, no, God is not finished with you. So if you work with me through this chapter to look at Mordecai and Esther and what happened in their lives as they kind of walked away from their faith and acted more like Persians, that might be like you. You've, you've acclimated to the culture and, and walked away some, from some facets of the faith uh, and compromised yourself. And is God finished with what he wants to do with you? The answer is going to be no. He's going to give you an opportunity to prove yourself to take the high road of obedience. So I want to look through this little story like we did last week uh, and look at it as scenes. Uh, and it breaks down into a four-scene movement. You first encounter in verse, verses 1 to 4 what I would call the council. The council. In verse 1 we read, 
After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, that was the queen, uh, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So after these things, uh, in the Hebrew text is out of uh, normal word order, which means uh, it's put out of normal word order, this temporal clause, to get you to stop and think about it. Have you ever been driving, because uh, <laughs> I've done it recently, uh, driven down a road that you know there's speed bumps, but you forgot? That's when you find out what your car is made of. Because I did it the other day. I hit a speed bump. I knew it was there. I told myself it was there. I forgot about it and blew right through that thing. Uh, airborne, you know, wheels off the ground. You know, I mean, hit, you know, your head's on the ceiling of the car. It's going to hurt. Bam. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's terrible. It gets your attention, doesn't it? And, and that is what uh, this temporal clause is there for. It's out of normal word order in the Hebrew text to get your attention that something big is going to happen. Uh, the other thing is uh, I ask myself, okay, something big is going to happen. But I also ask myself as an interpreter, where is the first time that temporal clause is used in the Old Testament? That's very important. Uh, and what I found is it's at first used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, uh, where it says, and after these things. And then what's significant about Genesis 15.1? Well, the, Genesis 15.1 is where God tells Abraham, uh, I'm going I'm to bless the world through this covenant I've made for you, this unconditional covenant. I'm going to give you a son in your old age. I know you think it's impossible. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to bless the world with the Messiah that's going to come through your loins and your people. Trust me, the Messiah is going to come. And it's all about the Abrahamic covenant that God's going to bless the world through the Jews. What's the world think today? Opposite of that, that the Jews are the problem. And that if we just like eradicate them, the world would be such a better place. That is from the devil himself. It's the other way around. That God told Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm going to bless you as the father of this nation. And through you will come the Messiah who will be the redeemer. And, and it's going to happen. You're not going to get eradicated as a people. And so when you look at the book of Esther, which is a book about Haman trying to eradicate the Jews, it's his version of the river to the sea thing, uh, genocide. He wants to wipe them all out toward the end of the book. Uh, I think this temporal marker draws upon Genesis 15:1 grammatically to tie the two together where the author's merely telling you, oh, the Lord used this first with uh, Abraham to say, I'm going to save my people and they're going to bless the world. The other thing about the temporal marker, and I'm sorry to spend so much time on the temporal marker, but they are important. Don't you love them? I do. Uh, what else can we draw out of a temporal marker? Well, it, it says after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after the things that just happened in chapter 1, which leads to another question. If it's, a, if it's a temporal situation between the two chapters, how much time evolved or elapsed between those two chapters? Did they just happen sequentially? Answer, no. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, as I told you, happened in 43 B.C., it happened in the third year of his reign that he had that huge big party to raise money to go fight Greeks. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, Esther is going to be brought to, into the king's private residence in the seventh year of his reign, which is going to be 479 B.C. So the difference between 483 B.C. and 479 B.C. is four years. So how much time elapsed between chapter 1 and 2? Four years. Four years, which leads to another interpretive question. What happened in those four years? Well, he, he forbid the queen to come in his presence anymore because she wouldn't obey his word to come into his drunken party to show herself off to all of his friends. So he got rid of Queen Vashti. He now needs another queen, but he's raising money to take his country to war because he wants to destroy the Greeks. 
who were a hard, hard problem for his father. So in those four years, he goes to war with Greece. If you study history, it didn't go well for him. In fact, even though he has superior numbers, he is the superior force. He's the superpower. He has more ships than they ever could dream of. They are going to beat him uh, terribly. And he's going to go back to Persia uh, as a defeated king. So when he gets to Persia, back in, after four years, he gets to Persia as a defeated king. How do you think he felt in chapter 2? Well, he's probably despondent. He's probably discouraged. Uh, he's probably depressed. And he has no wife. Why? He got rid of her after a drunken party, remember? So in verse 1 it says, After these things, when his anger had subsided, because he had anger man management issues, he remembered Vashti and what he had done. What had he done? He pasted, made a decree that she could never be the queen ever again. Now he's lonely for his wife. He's thinking to himself, man, I really loved her. What was I thinking? Um, what is interesting, uh, he has a problem because he passed a decree saying she couldn't be the queen anymore. What's interesting is this is going to be highly ironic because later in the story, he's going to have another, another wife, another queen, Esther, and he's going to have another decree that has been uttered from his mouth uh, that is unalterable, and the next queen, the next wife, is going to be instrumental in getting him to reverse it. Now, getting ahead of ourselves, but what this is telling you is God is the God of reversals, of shocking reversals, that even though you thought something, there is no way that can be fixed, God's like, oh, watch me. And that's the book of Esther. Now, he's been walking around the palace uh, after he got back from uh, being destroyed by the, uh, the Greeks, and he's moaning and groaning about the fact that he doesn't have a wife. Who's listening to him? All of his attendants. Verse 2, listen to what his attendants say to him. Uh, the king who served him said, quote, now, we got, hey, we have a solution for your problem. What do you need to do? Uh, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. And you thought cosmetics were just something new. Uh, they, they, were, they were using them back then. I don't know if it was oil of LA or where they went, but they had their own thing. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be the queen in place of Vashti, and how did the king feel about this particular advice? <laughs> he listened to him and said, this is, this is a, that's a great idea. It's a great idea. Okay, think about this guy. He's a politician of politicians. He's the king of a superpower. And he's needing some advice. In the last chapter, he gets advice from his wise man about how to deal with his wife's dysfunction when it, she wasn't the dysfunctional one. It was him. They should have handled their marriage problems in private, but his his advisors told him, no, nuke in public. So he listens to the wrong people. Now who is he getting advice on how to find a wife? His butlers. Would you go to your butler for advice on who to marry? If you, if you had a butler? <laughs> Let's pretend you're in England. You had a butler. Would you go to them and go, hey, who do you think I should marry? And, and what kind of advice did they, did they give him? What, what were they not concerned about in finding this, notice what they didn't say. They didn't say anything about her inner character. They, they didn't say, uh, is she a good thinker? Um, they didn't care if she was a loyal person or not. Um, they didn't care about her spiritual makeup. Uh, they didn't care about, they, they didn't even check Myers-Briggs. <laughs> like, what's her personality type? When I was a young pastor uh, doing 
I was trained by Minerth and Meyer, uh, Minerth and Meyer clinics when I was in grad school, uh, who are some of the greatest psychiatrists in the United States, but they train, trained us in, in grad school. But I used to do personality tests when I would uh, do weddings or with a, a young couple. So I, I first had to look at like, psychologically, how are you wired? So they could at least know what to expect. I still have some of the charts. They're really interesting. Because the first couple I, 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 I did this on, uh, they dated for seven years. And when I did their thing, their, their personalities just, it just, it was perfectly matched. I'm like, you guys are probably never going to argue. I mean, it was just a perfect match. Other people, op opposites, totally different. So I would tell them, you're social, she's antisocial. You're an extrovert, she's an introvert. So I could tell them like what to expect. They didn't ask anything about personality type. What were they looking for? She just had to be drop dead. What? Gorgeous. These are men. She's just got to look good. Good form, good face, good function. That's it. Okay, I have to ask you. Is a woman's worth just external? No. Men, I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> no, no. Ladies, what would you say? No. That sounded really definitive. No, no. Uh, so here's what I would say the king should have told his butlers who gave him this lame advice. Here's what I, you know, I'm just adding to the text. Here's what, I, what he should have said. Gentlemen, uh, there's more to a woman than what she looks like. Uh, beauty is in, true beauty is internal. Outer beauty will fade. Inner beauty grows and flourishes in time. Uh, isn't it the truth? Haven't you been to a high school reunion? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think, what happened at that high school reunion? See, you're laughing. And I didn't even say anything funny. I mean, you, you got people at other tables going. I used to, I'm looking at a guy at another table. I told my wife, I used to fear Gordon. Now, I mean, he obviously uh, kept on partying, drinking beer, because look at how he's out of shape. You know, looking at girls that no one would date in school, all of a sudden they're the prettiest girl there. You know what I mean? This happened to you? Now you're all quiet. Yeah. Well, think about it. Things change, don't they? What really matters? I mean, I've been married 43 years. What matters? You know? Well, all those internal qualities. I mean, that, that becomes a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so he, they're not asking for that. They're just saying, we just, what does she look like? Pick her based on what she looks like. Now, had he got his hands on the, the guy that invented eHarmony.com, Neil Warren Clark, that, that man, uh, he has a book I have used with more young people over the years since I've been here. Once I found this book, it's called Date or Soulmate with a question mark. Did you hear me? Date or Soulmate. If you're dating, you need to buy this book. Yeah, he's a Christian. I think he's a Catholic. Uh, Christian. He's, he's, he's a godly man. But he, but he wrote this book, and it is an amazing book. My, my copy is well-worn, because um, I've used it so, in so many situations. If the king would have had this book, it's not what his butler said. Uh, well, what does uh, the, the man from eHarmony say you should be looking for uh, to find that soulmate? Uh, number one, you need to know yourself well first. You know, what kind of person are you? Uh, learn yourself better than you ever thought you could. Number two, know what kind of mate you're looking for. I mean, what kind of woman, what kind of husband do I want? I mean, what kind of mate do I need? And he says, he tells you in the book, he lists them out. What are the 10 things you must have from him or her? What are the 10 things you cannot stand and do not want to be married to? 
Why are you so quiet? <laughs> Must-haves. What, what are your must-have lists? And he gives you like 50 things to think about. I got to have these things. I got to have some of these things. And I'm not going to compromise. And, and make a list and then start dating before you get emotionally attached and you're not thinking clear. Know what your list is. And you got 10 things on there and they don't have seven of them. It's not a soulmate. And if they're, well, what are the things you can't stand? The, well, the guy's got to, he's got to be clean. <laughs> he's he's got to put away stuff. I don't want a guy that just, you know, takes off his boots and throws his jeans and belt and everything. I mean, I want all that stuff put away. I want things organized. If, if you're dating him and you're saying he's not organized, hello, what's God telling you? It's probably not the guy for you. I mean, pay attention. If this is the thing you cannot stand, uh, if you're looking for male chivalry, you know, and you, you're in the car with him as you're dating, and you're, you're in your car, and he's in the passenger seat, and you pull up at a gas station, and he's just sitting there, he ain't moving, and you're like, uh, and he's like, yeah, I'm waiting for you to get out and pump the gas, babe. I mean, it, that, that type of thing. So, so things you can't stand. He didn't even ask those questions. Uh, number three says, uh, what's, the purpose spiritual, what's their person's spiritual standing? Are they a believer or an unbeliever? Uh, what, he said, number four, what is the person's emotional health? And number six, or number five, uh, what differences should you never overlook? That, that's, a, that's chapter eight. That's an interesting chapter. And then at the end of the book, this is what he says at the end of the book, page 162. He says, the most important thing to do when you're evaluating a person to be your husband or your wife, start from the inside out. Did you hear me? Start from the inside out. What was King doing? Xerxes. Outside. I don't even care about the end. <laughs> Just the outside. Just the outside. Uh, that is uh, tragic, uh, what his uh, friends tell him. So before we get into the, the actual contest to find a wife, we have a parenthetical break where the author gives us some information about the story uh, kind of off to the side, and it's what I would call the coach. The coach is going to be Mordecai coaching his cousin Esther. Uh, notice what it says about uh, the coach, Mordecai. It says, uh, at the time there was this Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai. Uh, who is he related to? Well, he's the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish. And what tribe is he from? Uh, he's, 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 a, he's a Benjamite. He's a Benjamite. Uh, you, need, you need to just stop right there. It says uh, he, he was an, his family was exiled from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled uh, with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, when, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king, of, had exiled. So his family were exiled uh, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed uh, Jerusalem starting in uh, 605 B.C. But he's from what tribe? Benjamite. Important. Uh -huh. Why that tribe? Well, that tribe is the tribe, uh, as a, his great-grandfather was Kish. He is from the, the royal line of King Saul. That's interesting. Because King Saul was a man who didn't do exactly what God wanted him to do. And Mordecai is going to be a man who wasn't really doing what God wanted him to do at the beginning, but eventually does what God wants him to do. And he's going to act like a king later in the book when the king won't act like the king. So he's just dropping this stuff in. The other thing is, Benjamites were left-handed. Any left-handed people here today? I got to get out of the stage light so I can see you. Yes, I thank God for you. Yeah, I'm left-handed. Majority of you, you're right-handed? Yeah, yeah. Didn't you hate school? Your hand, is, all the desks go this way, and your hand's out here as a left-hander, writing in space. I, I was using scissors the other day. They were made for a right-handed person. You always got to throw your hand in. That's why I always cut like this. It's just, it, it's hard. Everything's hard, but a left-hander. But 
the left-handers in Israel, the Benjamites, they were the special ops. How do I know that? Because I read the Old Testament. They were the slingers, not swingers. <laughs> slingers. They were the guys that, and I have some of these, these, these uh, ancient uh, lead balls that are, have a point to them that they would pour for weaponry for the military uh, that they found in Israel. And this is what the slingers would use, the Benjamites. They would sling with this left hand and then let it go as the, as the sling is tied to their little pinky. They would let the leather strap go and, and sling those projectiles at their enemy. They were very precise. But they were left-handed. Why is that important? Um, because when you attack the city, the gate wasn't just a straight-on shot at the gate. Uh, if that screen was the gate, uh, they would build a box in front of it and put the gate over there to get to that gate. So if you came this way, they knew most soldiers were right-handed. So if you were a right-handed soldier, where's your shield? Left hand. So if you attack the main gate through the, the first gate, you have to turn to the left to attack that gate. Where's your shield? Left hand. Where's the archer? <laughs> He's on your right-hand side. You're dead. But if you were Benjamite, where's your sword? Or where's your shield? Right hand. You turn to attack that gate. They can't shoot you. See, the, the left-handed people got the edge. They're special ops. I don't know what our army's thinking at Fort Bragg. But there are hopefully some special op guys, like a whole unit's left-handed. I mean, historically, that's what the Benjamites were. That's Mordecai. He comes from this tribe known for great battle as, as warriors. And the tribe of Benjamin was just north of Jerusalem, sandwiched between the tribe of Judah and then the ten tribes of, the, of Ephraim, the nor northern tribes. They're sandwiched in between them on the main road between the north and the south and the east and the west. So if anybody knew how to know how to defend their land, it was them. They were brave. And this is who Mordecai is. He's from that tribe. He's going to live up to the name of his tribe. He's going to become a warrior, and God's going to give him a chance to do that. Uh, what was his name? Mordecai. Jewish name or Persian name? Persian name. It's a derivative of the ba Babylonian god Marduk. They renamed him to get rid of his ethnicity. Uh, that's what happened to Daniel when he, in chapter 1 when he and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, got renamed. Uh, they, got re they got renamed. Uh, that happened when you were taken into captivity. Um, it says in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 to 5, he was bringing up Hadassah, his, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his daughter. So he's a very brave man, a very powerful man, probably well-connected as a man from the royal line uh, with people at the city gate where we're going to see him frequently. And the city gate is where you did business, uh, a lot of transactional things happened there. So he's probably a well-connected man. And uh, his, uh, his cousin's parents die, and he takes her in as his daughter. Her name is Esther. Uh, Esther is her uh, Babylonian name related to the, the goddess Ishtar, or the love goddess in their pantheon. Uh, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle tree, which has a beautiful star-like flower. It's one of my favorite trees. I have several of them in my yard. Uh, it has a little star-like flower. And according to Isaiah 55, verse 13, when the Messiah returns, he will take the deserts and make them bloom and will make them uh, have myrtle trees all over the place. It's a sign of great beauty. So this is Esther. Uh, has a Babylonian name like her cousin Mordecai. Uh, and we're getting an inkling that something may not be right with the two of them. Uh, next thing, there's this huge contest, uh, which is basically like a beauty pageant. 
It says in verse 8, So it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard that many of the young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the custody of Haggai, uh, that Hester was taken to the king's palace in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of all of the women. Now, there are some who believe uh, that she was, she, along with all the other women, were made to come here, translated, forced to come here. I do not take that position. Uh, because the word here that is used to gather is the Hebrew word kavas. And if you do a lexical study of the word kavas, it doesn't mean to forcibly remove somebody to another location. Uh, like, okay, when you came here to church, we could say you gathered here today. Did anyone force you? No. You just came because you want to come to worship, be with other Christians, etc. So that's kavas. That's on your own free will you came. That's the word that is used here. So this doesn't mean she was thrust there into this situation. This has huge connotations. If she is a Jew, goes and is part of this carnal pageant with all that it's going to entail, she did it willingly which means she's going to go against Deuteronomy 7, which says that they should not intermarry with the Gentile because they're a Jew. That would be sin. Uh, Leviticus 18 tells, it, tells the Jew how to function sexually. And she's going to have a relationship with this king who's not her husband. He's also a Gentile. And she's to prove herself as the potential queen, as we're going to see, she, she totally throws Leviticus 18 to the wind. So I'm of the opinion she was highly compromised, as was Mordecai, her cousin. He kind of put her up to it. It says in verse 9, and we're going to read the text and then talk about it. It says, now the young lady uh, pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her, that's the head of the eunuchs, with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her maids, her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So immediately they see something unique about Esther, and they push her up to the top. She's got her own attendants when all the other girls don't. Verse 10, Esther did not make known uh, her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So she's deceptive. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther, Esther was and how she fared. Now, he says in verse 12, when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king Asherah's, after the end of their 12 months under regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. What did they have to do to get prepared to see the king? For one year, they had to do this. Six months with oil and myrrh and, and, and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. So I don't know what they used. Um, I don't know what stores they went to, what products they had. But whatever it is they used to make the skin primo, get rid of age spots, wrinkles, whatever they used, those women, and there were hundreds of them, had one year to get prepared to spend one evening with the king. And it's all sexual in nature. Bear in mind. Um, it says in verse 14, In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Ashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubine. So they went in for a sexual contact with Xerxes one time. It says, She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So if he never called your name again, then you're just one of his concubines, probably never to marry in your lifetime, and you would be lonely the rest of your life. Verse 15 it says, now when the turn came to Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came in to go into the king, she, unlike the other ladies, didn't request anything except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised her. So she knows, if anybody knows Xerxes and his taste, it's that man. I'll do what he says. It says, and Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
And Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, which is in the Jewish religious calendar. That's uh, either uh, December, late December or January. Of what year? 479 or 478 BC. So she didn't get to go see the king until he had been with women, a woman a night, for 10 straight months. Think of the perversion. Now, how, do I, how, would, I, how would I even think she's compromised? Uh, number one, um, Deuteronomy 14 told the Jews how to eat, what was kosher, what was non-kosher. Uh, it's very explicit. So God said, I want my people to be distinct from all others. Holiness is about being distinct. And so you can eat this, but you can't eat that. Uh, what did I just read to you? You read to you, when they took Esther the queen and gave her her little uh, group of attendants and stuff, it says they gave her cosmetics and they gave her food. It doesn't say the food was kosher. So what was she eating? Pork sandwich? I'm not, I mean, I'm a, I mean, whatever they Persians ate, she ate. And their food was probably dedicated to a false god. So she's, she's compromised just in doing that. Uh, number two, she hid her Jewishness from the Persians around her. So they thought she was a, a, a Persian from her, from her words and her actions. But she's deceiving them. Why? Mordecai told me not to say anything. Just hide the fact that you're a Jew. Uh, so I would question the motivations of Mordecai. Because he doesn't know the story that's going to be. They're going to try to uh, bring genocide to the Jews. He doesn't even know that. I think he's looking for a power position. And he's pushing his uh, cousin to go do this. So she's using deception to get ahead. Uh, all you got to do is read the Old Testament. Exodus 20, 16, uh, 23, verse 1. It's very explicit. God says you, you, will sh you should not bear false witness. You should not lie and deceive. She's going to do the exact thing that God said don't do. The third thing... Uh, she entered the contest knowing that each woman would have a night with the king. So after uh, Josephus, the Jewish uh, historian, if you read Josephus' book, uh, he says that the king had, had 400 women before he ever got to Esther. Think of the perversion of this man. Uh, she should have said, I, I will not do this. But she, she goes in and does it anyway. Uh, and this de defies the commands that I just listed from the book of Deuteronomy in Leviticus chapter uh, 18. Um, did she know those things? Sure. How do I know that? Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 to 5. says, Hear, O Israel. It's the great Shema of Israel. God says, uh, Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words from the Torah, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them if you're a parent. You will diligently teach them to your sons. You shall talk to them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You will teach them. Don't you know that she had been taught this? That that's how their country functioned. So she knew the law. She just chose not to do, the, to do what the, the, the law said. Her story can become our story quickly. You walk out of church today, you know exactly what the Word of God says. Don't do this, do this. And you get an opportunity to compromise, to get ahead, in a certain way, and so you compromise. And, and, and you become what Esther is in this chapter. It's doing the opposite of what God has called you to do. The question is, is God finished with you? No, no, God's not finished with you. Uh, he is going to give you another opportunity, uh, a, a crossroads as it were, like he's going to give her to have a come to Jesus moment as it were. You're going to follow hard after me and do the right thing, or are you going to stay on the low road? Uh, 
she was a compromised young lady, but God wasn't finished with her, and neither was God finished with you. It also tells us that in her compromise, she found favor. She found favor with all who saw her. She found favor with Haggai in charge of the, all of the ladies. Uh, she found favor with the king. Uh, when you study that, that phrase, to find favor, uh, it's a great statement in the Old Testament because people that find favor in the Old Testament are finding favor from God. And he pours his favor out upon those who are obedient, who don't compromise, like Daniel. It says in Daniel chapter 1, um, verses 8 to 9, that Daniel found, found favor with God because he didn't compromise and eat the tainted food to the Babylonian gods. So he found great favor. God blessed him. Uh, Ezra, uh, the great scribe who rebuilds Israel after the, the Jews go back to Israel. Chapter 7, verse 6, he finds favor. Nehemiah, when he rebuilt the walls uh, in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verse 8, he found favor. But does that mean that God doesn't show favor to a Christian if they compromise? No, because we see it in the life of Esther. It's not being poured on her, but the favor is still there, which tell you, tells you, I don't, I don't care what you did. Uh, God forgives sin. He forgives compromise, and he says, okay, now let's move forward. I got other plans for you. Will you follow me? Um, when she stepped into that position, God's going to circumvent her sin and, and give her an opportunity to step up to the plate and do great things. The story ends with what I would call as the coronation, verses 17 and 18. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the women, he, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her, made her queen instead of Vashti. And then notice what he does. He does what he does best. He throws a party. He gave a great banquet. What do you call it? Esther's banquet. For who? For all of his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday. This is Esther's federal holiday. Uh, it's for all the provinces. And then he said, hey, this isn't enough. I am so excited about my new wife. I'm going to give everybody in the country a gift. How would you do that if you didn't have Amazon? I'm just wondering. He's going to give everybody that he, can, that he knows about a gift. Who knows what it was? It doesn't tell us what it was. But he's so excited about her. But from God's perspective, the young woman had compromised. And her cousin was kind of part of that too, Mordecai. But remember, he's a warrior. He's just going to be given an opportunity to become a spiritual warrior. And as we're going to see when we get to the end of this chapter, uh, he's going he's to act like God wants him to act and head in a different direction. And so is she. So look at your life. Where have you compromised right now? I mean, something primary. Some compromise is necessary, but something primary where God said, don't compromise that. And you did. And you feel bad about it. You have guilt about it. Uh, well, confess that to the Lord. Uh, he'll forgive you. And then say, Lord, now what do you want me to do? Because he's not finished with you. And you'll be given an opportunity like uh, Ken, Ken Wales, to do the right thing. And he'll help you do that. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for a story that's, uh, it's real. We, we live in a world uh, with many tests like this, uh, and sometimes we fail and don't do well, uh, may we never lose sight of the fact that you are the good shepherd, and you will find the sheep that is lost, and you will come find us so you can use us and help us to be used of you when the opportunity presents itself. And uh, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy, uh, and for the power of the scriptures uh, to challenge us to live a life pleasing unto you. In Christ's name, amen.